Our second reading is from the Gospel of John, chapters 7 and 8. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him who whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Again Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. The word of the Lord. I was a uh, youth minister over 20 years ago, and uh, the church that I was a part of had this semi-denominational tie to this camp that was being developed in Highland County, Virginia, right on the edge of the West Virginia border. And so the camp didn't really have a lot going on yet, but they uh, got this mountaineer, literally a West Virginia mountaineer, this guy to come and do some fun stuff with us. This guy was, um, he looked like a hippie, but he was stringy and tough, and man, he knew his way around the mountains. Well, he took us on a couple of adventures, one of which involved spelunking. Spelunking is caving. Caving is going underground, not to pull out coal or diamonds. I'm not sure why you do it, but we did it as a group. There was 20 or 30 of us that went underground, and this was not Luray Caverns. This was the kind of caves that you ended up like at points having to like crawl through, and you kept, everyone had a helmet and a lamp, a light, and you could see your way through. But we went in for like an hour. I mean, we might have been like, like 30 miles beneath the, the Earth's surface, as far as I could tell. Like, you, we, there was no way to know, right? You're just down in there. And then we got into a room that was supposedly was big enough for all 25 of us. It was like the size of your bedroom. And he, he kind of got us all in that room, and he said, okay, we're going to turn off our lights. And you turn off the lights, the lamps, the headlamps, and it was utter darkness, blackness like I've never in my life experienced. The sort of blackness where you literally could not see the hand in front of your face, you couldn't see the person in front of you, the walls, you didn't know which, if you had to get out of there, you would just have to feel your way along the walls. There was no way to see anything. It was completely and totally disorienting. And at the time, I thought it was a lot of fun. I, I don't know if I would feel that way anymore. Most of us don't know utter darkness. Most of us don't know darkness in the way that the ancient world or the world before electricity understood darkness. I know some of you have been camping and those sorts of things, but to live day in and day out with just a candle, a lantern, and that's it. Your house separated from others. That ancient world from the Old Testament into the time of Jesus was a world of darkness. It was a world in which homes might have been far apart, and again, even if you had several homes together, the lighting was just a few candles here or there that you had to be careful not to use too much of. 
So you can imagine what it must have been like when a bad storm hit or your animals got loose, or if you were trying to fend off a wolf when you were the shepherd out in the field miles away, and you can't see anything. Completely disorienting, a lot of fear, and a lot of danger is what you would experience. And that wasn't just in the very distant ancient world 2,000 years ago. Even up to just a couple hundred years ago, there was a direct association between nighttime the darkness of nighttime, and danger. And you see this, actually, we have a couple of prayers in our prayer book that you can get a hold of one of our prayer books that are 500 years old, 1,000 years old, and the prayers for nighttime are actually prayers talking about the dangers of the night. Listen to a couple of them. This one prayer for protection, it's done in the evening prayer service in our prayer book, and the wording feels very dated. It says, we ask for your protection through the coming night, protection. Bring us in safety to the morning hours. And then the next one is from Compline, a service, uh, a prayer service right before you go to bed. And it says, lighten our darkness and defend us from all the perils and dangers of this night. I know when I have prayed that, I've, I've thought, what are the perils and dangers of the night? I mean, it's my, the greatest peril for me is like, I'm going to stub my toe on the way to the bathroom at 3 a.m., right? That's a danger, So am I I praying for that, like guidance safely there and back? Is it the danger that perhaps the coffee machine was not set right and the coffee won't be ready when I wake up? I mean, Lord, protect us from these dangers. It's just bad stuff. But to the medieval world, to the ancient world, the night and the darkness associated with it was dangerous. And they had a direct connection to spiritual dangers and darkness as well. But today, because of electricity, we don't see quite that contrast. We don't have that sense of danger with it. Now, we, we still have some associations of light and dark as a metaphor for danger or safety, good or bad, that sort of thing. But for most of us, the, the idea of light as something good is, is more like an epiphany or an idea, like that light bulb idea. And darkness is actually metaphorically used, even outside of religious circles, to talk about when you're in a season of sorrow or grief or depression, dealing with darkness, right? You're in a season of darkness, or you feel like there's just darkness closing in on you. So we have these metaphoric ideas, but we don't see it as danger. The ancient world not only saw that, that stark danger and the goodness of light, therefore, and the safety of light, but they also associated them with spiritual and moral goodness or evil. The Bible does this all the time. There's the metaphor of good and light, evil and darkness. And one had the presence of God, and the other was being apart from God. And that's why hell was often described as outer darkness apartness from God, where there is no light. And that's because God is described in the metaphor, in the imagery, the imagery that's used is God is light. He's the source of goodness and truth and hope and salvation. You see this uh, in, in Genesis and in Psalm. The, the Genesis begins, God said, let there be light, and there was light. All the source of life is the sun of light is God. God is that source, and he provided it. And then in Psalm 27, the psalmist says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. 
Not only is it, this is our source as God, that God is the source of light, but it was also a, a metaphor, a way of talking about your hopes, your hope of salvation in God. Isaiah and several other uh, prophets talk about the day when God would come and right all wrongs and bring his mercy and goodness and restoration, and it's the arrival of light, God's light. Those who walked in darkness, Isaiah 9 says, those who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen. This metaphor of light for God's salvation and darkness for being apart from God carries on in the Gospel of John that uses it all the time, light and dark, light and dark. In the very beginning of the Gospel of John, John is declaring what is about to be told, and he talks about it in these terms, the light, this is John 1, 9, the true light which gives light to everyone, he's talking about God, the true light which gives light to everyone, God, was coming into the world. God was about to arrive, John says. So here's, I want you to hold on to all that imagery of dark and light, right? Into that, at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stands up at the Temple Mount and he says, I am the light of the world. And underneath that and carrying with him are all of those understandings of darkness and light in that ancient world. All of the biblical metaphor and imagery of God as light and darkness as being apart and also all of the symbolism of the Feast of Tabernacles, which we'll talk about. We are in a series on Jesus, understanding the I am statements from the Gospel of John. In order to understand who Jesus is by what he claimed to be, and once we understand that, who he is and what it means to us. And we want to grasp all that Jesus is claiming when he says some of these very simple statements. But I think sometimes we overlook because we don't know all the background here. So we're going to take some time to unpack some of what's behind what Jesus is saying and maybe the implications for us in this day. So the backdrop to what Jesus is talking about when he says, I am the light of the world, is it's in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles, one of your favorite feasts, right? You celebrate it every year. It involves setting up tents and eating food and having all sorts of celebrations. Basically what happened was this. It was in the fall, like September, October. It was a post-harvest feast. And all of Jerusalem would, or all of Israel would go to Jerusalem. So if you were in a far off place, like a mile, a uh, hundred miles away, you and your whole family would journey to Jerusalem. You would build a booth or a tent, a tabernacle, and you would live in it with your family for a week. And the entire week involved all sorts of celebrations and rituals and ceremonies and offering sacrifices and giving thanks. And it was a wonderful celebratory time of remembering who God is, what he has done, celebrating the harvest and everything that had been brought in, but also celebrating how God had provided for Israel in the wilderness. You lived in the tents, the tabernacles, the, the booths, because for 40 years, Israel was led in the wilderness by God. They lived in tents in the wilderness. God himself dwelled in the tabernacle, which was a tent temple. And for 40 years, God provided for them until they got to the land of promise, the, the land of Israel. That was the backdrop to this whole uh, celebration every year at the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles. And I think sometimes it's helpful to imagine if you were a kid in that ancient world. If you were a kid, eight, nine, ten years old in that ancient world, you didn't go on vacation. You didn't go to Disney World or to the beach in the summer. 
Your vacations were these festivals in Jerusalem. Your life, even as a kid, would have been working on the farm or whatever business your family was in and maybe going to school as well. And once a year, twice a year, you as your family would go down to Jerusalem with all of your cousins. You would journey like two days, three days journey with all of your cousins and all of your best friends, all of you road tripping to Jerusalem. And when you got there, you went camping. And your dad was actually nice for that week. And you were eating all this food you didn't normally eat. And there was all this music and celebration and no one cared how late you you stayed up at night. It was just unbelievable. The most fun time for a world that was really hard back then. This would have been the high point of every kid's year. The fun, the joy, the family, and the awe and wonder at all these ceremonies that you didn't fully understand. And as you grew up as an adult, those ceremonies would have more and more meaning to you. Those rituals would be things you would look forward to, not just the fun and celebration, but as an adult, you would finally get to the end of that work season, that harvest season, and you'd be able to celebrate. You had just brought in the harvest, and now you could celebrate. You would go with your family, with your brothers and sisters, with your kids, on that journey to Jerusalem, and for an entire week, be able to celebrate and give thanks to God. And As you became older, the power and the gravity of that, of all those ceremonies and that festival, it wasn't just a vacation. There was something more going on and you would begin to understand the weightiness of what was being enacted and reenacted in all of these ceremonies. And it would give meaning to your faith and your life. This would have been the highest point, one of the two high points in the the ancient Jewish world in their life together and their life as God's people. And I think in order to understand the weightiness of it, we have to remember the role that story and symbol and ritual and tradition play in giving meaning to our lives. I think we can often overlook this, but hear me out. All of us tell stories about life. We tell stories about why we are here, what matters, and why we are doing what we do. We all have narratives, stories that we buy into that give meaning to life. You may not be aware of it, but there's a whole set of narratives and stories that undergird your understanding of what's real, what's normal, what's true. Probably if you'd grown up in China or if you'd grown up in the ancient world instead of in America, your stories would be different. But you have a whole set of stories. And you can see how they play out in certain people's lives too, even in negative ways. The stories can be positive, negative, somewhat indifferent. If you have dealt with a lot of failure and loss in your life, and on top of that, you have grown more and more isolated from other people, you will start telling and listening to stories about the wrongs that have been done to you and the blame that you need to assign other people. Those stories will then cause you to hate and can even lead to violence. Think about this. It is stories, it is story, not logic. It is story, not logic, that leads an entire people to turn on and kill another people group. Nobody logically gets there. I need to kill all of these people for me to survive. It's actually stories and narratives you tell about what is true that actually have more power than logic ever does. The stories we tell are reinforced by our habits and rituals and traditions. The things that we repeat 
Why do you strive so much? Why do you try to achieve so much? Pursuing career, college, career, like get that great college, go to the, get that career. Maybe have a family, definitely buy a house. Like we have this career trajectory, this life trajectory. It's not purely logical. There's a story that we've been hearing our whole lives and we tell ourselves again and again, right? It's, it's getting dated a little bit, but that American dream is the story that undergirds so much of the narrative of our Western culture. And it gives us a sense of what's valuable, what matters, and how we define our lives. It's stories, not logic, that gets you there. The stories we tell ourselves and the stories we listen to shape our identity, our meaning, our hopes, and how we live our lives. On top of that, in the ancient world, in that ancient Jewish world, symbol and tradition were incredibly powerful ways of telling your story and retelling your story. The symbols and traditions of your culture reinforced your collective beliefs and identity. It strengthened your bonds together and deepened your faith and your collective or national aspirations. The Exodus story was that story for Israel. The story that gave them meaning and purpose and hope. And the Feast of Tabernacles was an annual tradition with a bunch of rituals and ceremonies and symbols that told and retold that story. Two of the, the, the big emblems that aren't quite as well known to many of us, but are written about in Jewish writings in the first century and, the, and around that, one, uh, were, were part of the symbols and ceremonies that, re, that were enacted during the Feast of Tabernacles. One of them was the water ceremony. And one of them was the water ceremony, which is somewhat behind what Jesus is talking about. Every morning, every morning during the Feast of Tabernacles, everyone would gather in the temple area, and the priest, the high priest, would take this pitcher, like, like that one of those over there, a big golden pitcher, and he would march down the, the hill. The temple was at the highest point in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was the highest point in the area. He would march down to the pool of Siloam with all of the people in procession following him as the choirs, the temple choir was singing the halal psalms of Psalm 113 to 118. And everyone would go down, and he would fill the pitcher. And as they processed up, everyone would be shouting and, and, and joining in the cheering. They would, uh, they would carry these branches uh, and, and this fruit symbolizing the harvest. And as they got up to the Temple Mount, the shofar was blown, which was this trumpet that was saying something good or amazing is about to happen. And then as they were singing and giving thanks to God, he would pour out the water onto the altar where all the animals had been sacrificed and the water would spill over and down the sides, symbolically running to the ends of the earth. Every morning they did this water pouring ceremony. It was telling a story of the past, how God had provided water for them out of the rock when they were in the wilderness, and for 40 years they didn't lack water. It was a story that was telling something about their present, how God had in that season provided the harvest rains, and they had had fruit on their land. And it was a story of the future. The prophets, several places like Ezekiel and Zechariah, talk about the coming kingdom age when God would arrive and when he arrived he would sit on his throne in Jerusalem at the temple and the waters that water the earth would flow out from under his throne 
through Jerusalem, throughout Israel, to the ends of the earth, and everyone would know that the source of their life was God Almighty. And this water was symbolizing their past, their present, and their future hopes of God's arrival. Every morning they did this water ceremony, and every night they lit these torches, these great torches. These great torches were 40, 60, 70 feet tall, sitting on the Temple Mount in that area where they poured the water. They were these towers that had these bowls filled with oil and a wick in the middle. And every night as it became dark, they would go through a ceremony that involved the lighting of those torches. And those giant great torches sitting that high in Jerusalem would light up everything. And people all around through the night would dance and sing and the bands would play. It was like an all-night Christian, no, Jewish rave. Like it was just kind of like they were just all through the night raging in joy and celebration. The light everywhere. In fact, some of the ancient Jewish writings say that there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that was not illuminated by these candelabra, these giant candles. Think about the ancient world. It was dark. It was dark. Like people had a candle, another candle in here. Even Jerusalem would have been dark. The alleys would have been dark, except for seven nights a year. When these candelabra sitting up that high would have given a lighting to the entire city, and all the tens of thousands of people gathered in there would have seen light all night long. And the kids would have stayed up, and their dads are off dancing and celebrating, and it would have been glorious. They were reenacting God's presence with them in the wilderness wanderings. By fire, he led them during the night. By cloud during the day, God's presence with them very visibly seen in that light and fire. And it was anticipating the day, as the prophets talked about, when God's glory would be present with them again and the whole world would see the light that God, their God, was the true Lord of all. The Feast of Tabernacles, with its water ceremony and great lamps, told and retold with symbol and ritual the story of Israel, of Israel's God and their future salvation. They were anticipating the enthronement of Yahweh, their God, the restoration of their people, Israel, and the day when God would reign and the whole world would know. The festival lasted seven days, and on the eighth day, it was a Sabbath. And it was a glorious Sabbath when you took down your tents and you didn't do the water ceremony and the candles were not lit. And just as that whole celebration had ended, Jesus stands up on the Temple Mount in the very place that the water had been poured out where those candles had been lit every single night. And what does he say? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And in the same message, he goes on to say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The prophets looked for the day. The prophets looked for the day when God would bring unending waters from him. Jesus says, that day is here. I am the source of true living waters. The Spirit of God dwelling in you is what all the prophets were looking for and this ceremony was pointing to.
The Old Testament looked for the day when God would arrive and bring his light, giving life and purpose forever. And Jesus stands up and says, the light you're waiting for is me. Those candelabra, those giant torches are gone, but they pointed to me. The fire in the wilderness pointed to me. Jesus is saying, come to me, believe in me, follow me, and you will no longer walk in darkness. His claim is absolutely audacious. The entirety of the Exodus and all the festivals that they had been living out year in and year out for centuries were pointing to him is his claim. All that the scriptures were pointing to, the God who had given light, the God who had led them through the wilderness and provided for them, the God who was present with them as they were enacting and reenacting these symbols and ceremonies, telling their story again, he says, it points to me. It's about me. You want to have light, the light of life? You need to come to me. Believe in me. Follow me. But we seek light on our own, right? That's what we do. We seek light on our own. We are all trying to find meaning and identity, which is some of what we've been talking about. Because look, all of us want to live a good life. None of us are like, I really want to live a really bad life. We want meaning and we want purpose. Meaning and purpose. We want to have an established identity. We want to know who we are. But I would suggest all of us are on some level groping in the darkness. Somewhat in a cave, trying to feel our way out. And I know this because I also live a life, right? And I know what it's like. When you start your career, and some of you guys will get there eventually, when you start your career, you realize that you're groping around. You're like, you're just trying to figure it out. You're, you're not sure how good you are at this. You start your career and you're groping in the dark and you'll sort of admit that you can't really see. But after a little bit of success and eventually if you make it in your career, then you're like, I can see. I should tell everyone else how to get out of here. But if somewhere along the way in there you also get married or have kids, you realize you're blind you quickly realize you're in the dark. You have no idea what you're doing. But then maybe you have a baby who you get to sleep through the night and you're like, yeah, I'm pretty good at this. I need to teach everyone else because their baby is crying. My kid's good. My two-year-old comes when I say, I mean, like, I know how this is, I I got it figured out. But then that two-year-old becomes a teenager and then you realize you're blind once again. Or something else happens. Tragedy strikes, cancer strikes, loss strikes. And you realize you're just in darkness too. You don't have it all under control. I mean, do any of us really know what we're doing? Are we all just good fakers? I'd ask this, what can you control? If you can see, you got it all under control, what can you control? The economy? People's opinions of you? How your kids are going to turn out? Your own health? Jesus is saying, I am the light. Come to me and you will walk in the light. And what he means by that is not come to me and I'll give you steps for how to live your life, okay? It's not uh, look to Jesus so that you know the rules to follow, the path to follow. It's rather 
Look to Jesus as your light, your source of light, the thing that gives you life and hope. It's the question on what is your life founded? What is the source of your life? You know, we are all in some way drawn to light. I was noticing this the other day as I was thinking about it, how if I sit out at night, I, I actually looked at the moon and the stars a little bit, not at the blackness behind it, right? And if you've ever sat around a campfire, what does everyone do? They don't just look into each other's eyes. They look at the fire. You can't not. There's something about a fire or a candle flame or the lights on a Christmas tree that, that draw our eyes to them. The twinkling lights, the starry sky, we're drawn to the light. There's something about it that is attractive to us. There's something about a light that is attractive to a moth as well. Now, a moth is an insect that, that navigates by light. It uses light as part of its navigation. And sometimes a moth, in all of its great wisdom, will navigate itself right up to that light bulb, right up to that flame. And the very thing that it thinks is giving it light and direction is the very thing that consumes it and kills it. Most of us base our life on something. We tend to look to something or someone, a person like a spouse or your kids, an achievement a certain, uh, uh, reaching a certain level of status, of fame, of money, we look to something or someone to give us light. Or we simply seek to be our own light on our own. We look inward with self-confidence, independence. I've got it. I'm under control. I've got my own light. What Jesus is saying is if you make anyone or anything your light besides me, it will consume you it will kill you. Only I will give you the light that will set you free. Landon Gilkey was born in 1919. He grew up in a privileged home, was able to grow up in good schools. He graduated 1939 from Harvard um, at the, near the top of his class as a philosophy major from Harvard. And he went to go teach uh, English at a college, at a university in China. Now, he was the sort of person that didn't really believe in God. He thought that wasn't totally necessary. He actually had the, the view that rationality and goodness go together. And so if you're logical and you think things through, good people will think things through and solve the world's problems. And we can, you know, some people might need religion, but that's because they're a little bit weak. But, and that's fine if that works for them, but it's not really necessary. You just need to think things through logically and carry them out and good will come. We can have peace. People will solve problems. And that's really what he thought until the Japanese overtook his area and everyone in his circles were thrown into an internment camp. And he said at first, all of his beliefs were, were assured because the people did this amazing thing. They were in this like two you know, uh, square block city with thousands of people. Everyone had like a, a little half of a mat to sleep on and that was their own personal space. And at first everyone started organizing themselves and they worked together and they created a band and other people made food and, and they were figuring out how to sanitize things. But over the course of time, as the guns were peered on them and food was more and more scarce, people became more and more self-consumed and less and less logically driven towards collective well-being. 
Eventually, he realized that nobody does anything but serve themselves when they are oppressed. He couldn't logically try to get somebody to help somebody else. It had to make sense to them. And even if it did make sense, they wouldn't do it if they didn't want to. And he began to lose faith in his faith in no faith. He was shaken. And he came to realize that there's a need for God. He writes this in his account about his experience there. Human beings need God because their precarious lives can find final significance only in his almighty and eternal purposes and because their fragmentary selves must find their ultimate center only in his transcendent love. He goes on to say, if the meaning of people's lives is centered solely in their own achievements, these are vulnerable to the twists and turns of history and their lives will always teeter on the abyss of pointlessness. And if their ultimate loyalty is centered in themselves, then the effect of their lives on others around them will be destructive of the community they need. And he concludes, only in God is there an ultimate loyalty that does not breed injustice and cruelty and meaning from which nothing can separate us. Gilkey was influenced by one particular prisoner who died while he was in there, a guy named Eric Liddell. Eric was a very humble man who was incredibly gifted as a runner, but ended up giving up his dreams of being a professional runner in order to go serve the poor and to bring the gospel to China. He, in that internment camp, lived with incredible humility and generosity towards teenagers, towards others, giving himself away. He had a light that was not based in himself. Eric Liddell's the chariots of fire guy. And it was a story not based, it was a light not based in himself, but from which he was able to share light to others. And Gilkey saw that and saw that there was something more that he needed. Jesus is the only light that makes you more alive and the closer you get will not kill you. <laughs> in fact, the closer you get, the more he fills you with light. More joy, more peace, more freedom, more hope, more life. Let's pray. In a dark world, we grope around for lights to guide us, Lord. Draw us to Jesus, to Christ alone as our light, that we might know the light of life. And then through us, may your life shine into the darkness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.